0: Hello, I'm Michael McMullen, this is the World Snooker Tour Podcast, and I'm joined today by the 1987 Masters Champion, Dennis Taylor. (laughs) Dennis, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, Michael, how are you doing? Are you okay? Yeah, good thanks. I say that as a bit of a joke, because Uh, you're always introduced as the world champion of 85. Yeah, but
1: the 87 Masters was right up there. That's up in my top three of all-time wins. Absolutely, and we'll
0: talk about both of those wins and others. But let's first of all speak about how you started out, Dennis, because you're from Coal Island in County Tyrone. Now, not every small town in what was effectively the countryside in Ireland would have had a snooker hall in those days, or a billiard hall as they were known. I wonder if you've ever reflected, Dennis, that had there not been a billiard hall in your town, your whole life could have been very, very different.
1: I probably would have still been in the local pipe works where I, I went to when I left school. Had My dad wanted me to be an electrician, but I wanted to get into the, the pipe works with all my friends. And uh, yeah, well, I, I wouldn't have still been there, but I, I might have retired from there only for Jim Joe's. It was called, it was Jim Joe Gervin, had a club with uh, two tables in it. And uh, I remember the door was open. As I was walking up Plater's Hill and I happened to see the the balls whizzing about on the green cloth and I thought that looks a bit interesting and it fascinated me and then I found out my brother used to go in there, he was four years older than me and uh, I said any chance of getting in and they let me go in and sit on the side, Uh, there was no alcohol or anything, no membership and because I was a good little boy I sat and held the rest and handed it to the players uh, if they needed the rest. And then, of course, eventually they let me stand on a lemonade box and play a few shots, and I was only eight years of age at the time.
0: It's fifty years now since you first turned pro, and people who know all about nineteen eighty-five often aren't aware that actually six years before that you were in another world final, and it was a world final that, unlike eighty-five, you were perhaps going in as favourite to win against Terry Griffiths.
1: Should have be, Terry, uh, because I'd got—I uh, used to always take my glasses off to play a snooker, uh, pretty you know poor eyesight but i did remarkably well with the eyesight i had but i had to take my glasses off to play and i got a special pair of contact lens for 1979 and they were brilliant i could see everything so much clearer you know the <laughs> unfortunately the balls were bigger but the pockets were also bigger but everything was clear and i beat steve that year Uh, Barry Hearn and a lot of people thought Steve would win his world championship in his first year because he was beating all the top players down in Romford and uh, beat Steve and then I knocked out Ray Reardon who was six times world champion so I was really playing some great snooker and led Terry 15-13 but uh, he outplayed me on the final day but uh, I had to switch from the contacts because with the astigmatisms I had I could only keep them in three or four hours and then they were causing me uh, a lot of pain so that was uh, when I switched to the old spectacles but yeah I had a great chance of winning the world championship in 79.
0: And you were well accustomed to the spectacles by the time you did finally win your first big title Dennis five years later the Rothmans Grand Prix in 1984 now normally when someone wins their first title there's a big celebration with the family I guess there still was with yours but it was a very different sort perhaps a bit more meaningful because of what had gone on in the weeks yeah, before
1: it. it was a bit subdued but I wasn't even going to play in the in the Rothmans Grand Prix after my mum had passed away. Suddenly she was only 62, had a heart attack and she was very slim and um, it was something you never dreamt of expecting to happen. You thought they are going to be around for at least another 20 years and it was during the uh, Jameson International up in Newcastle and I was playing really well in that but of course uh, the devastating news came through and I'd I, It was the worst drive in a car I've ever had in my life going back to Blackburn from Newcastle. And, uh, of course, then I, I didn't want to be bothered with snooker, but the family all said, well, listen, the Grand Prix, a couple of weeks later, go and play and try and win it for your mum. And that's exactly what I did.
0: In those days, to try to win a ranking tournament was so hard because there were only a few of them and Steve Davis was winning nearly all of them. So it was massive just to get one under your belt. Were you happy with that or did you immediately start thinking, right, now I want to build on this and maybe go on to become world champion?
1: Well, my ambition when I turned professional was to become world champion and I seen Alex uh, Higgins, who came over to Blackburn where I was based. I met Alex when he was 18. We played at the club in Coal Island. He won the All-Ireland Snooker. I won the British Billiards and they brought me back to play Alex and Jackie Bates, who was a billiards player. And Alex came over to Blackburn and I played hundreds upon hundreds of frames with Alex and i, I seen him have all the success then and I, and I used to play quite well against Alex in matches so I knew that I had the the chance and uh, of course the year after Alex turned professional I did and uh, you know but but even then you never dreamt you were going to go right the way to the top but you always dreamed about it
0: There is nothing left to say about that match, Dennis, because you've done a million interviews about it over the years. And just for anyone who's very new to the game and doesn't know, you were 8-0 down in the final against Steve Davis, who had won it three times by then, and you came back to win on the final black. Enormous television audience. A phenomenon, really, in sporting history. How soon after that did you become aware of just how colossal that match had become? It took a while.
1: I know when we were with Nick Hunter, there was a lovely photograph of... uh Steve, myself, and Nick Hunter, who was the executive producer at the time for BBC, and uh, a television set with 18.5 million on it. That's what the estimated the, uh, the viewing audience was. But I bet there was more than that, because the number of people that tell me they were in clubs and stayed there, and there was maybe 60 or 70 people watching one television set, and uh, it grew and grew, uh, and then... I mean, it's amazing now because Steve and myself have started doing shows uh, around the theatres, and uh, John Virgo comes along, compares it, and we have a great. Oh, this sounds like a
0: real funny evening.
1: You know, JV goes out, gets a few people to play trick shots, then Steve and myself come out, uh, play two frames, and then we reenact the final black and chat about that. And then, second half of the show, the three of us are on stage involving the whole audience. So it's a great couple of hours show. And and Steve's amazing. how he handles that and as the years have progressed you know he himself has said he'll remember that more than the six titles that he won so we were lucky to have been involved in a bit of snooker history that at the time we didn't realize
0: it was gonna uh, gonna be And never mind Snooker Dennis, you became one of the biggest TV stars in Britain because you were on everything. Kids TV shows, I think you were even on the Sooty Show, which was a a puppet show. You were just on everything and and you just loved it.
1: Yeah, and I did, I couldn't believe it, I did the the Wogan show three times in a year, Mm -hmm. Terry Wogan, uh, which was unbelievable. And uh, even on Big Break with Jim Davis and John Virgo, I managed to win a fellow holiday to Australia, how I cleared the, the balls up to win the holiday, I'll never know, because I was dressed as Widow Twanky <laughs> with a pair of high heels and a big pair of false boobs and a big long dress. But, uh, yeah, I did all sorts. But I was that type of person anyway. I would I would appear in anything I was asked to do, and I, I enjoyed every single minute of it.
0: It's funny you should mention Terry Wogan because I was about to mention him. At that time, there was such a negative image of Irish people in Britain because of what was going on. And it's often been put to him that he was a big part of showing the British people that there was another side to us. And you were very much part of that as well, this jovial Irishman. It was very important for Irish people to have people like you and Terry Wogan flying the flag for us and showing another side of us to the world.
1: Yeah, I think it was. And, and also, I remember going to watch Barry McGuigan win his world title against Pedrosa. Uh, that was a similar thing. That brought all the the people of Ireland together. Uh, but listen, I remember back, I left uh, Coal Island before the trouble started. But when the troubles were really bad in the 70s, there was a few of the professionals used to come over with me, and we could go to any section of the community and play an exhibition and get uh, treated the same wherever we went. And I was very proud that we were able to do that at the time when things were pretty bad over there. But uh, you know, there was a lot of the professionals, including Terry Griffiths, uh, Steve Davis, came over, Doug Mountjoy, Cliff Thorburn. I know Cliff found it strange being in Northern Ireland and suddenly somebody approaching you with, 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 with a machine gun looking to know where you were going. But uh,
0: but that was normal life in Northern Ireland at it, that it time. It was. It took yeah. Cliff
1: a bit of getting used to saying this because uh, um, one club we went to play at, there, was, there must have been 20, the army come down the steps just as we opened the door and Cliff t- couldn't believe what he was saying. But but we just went and, and, and everybody
0: uh, appreciated you know, what we did. You talk about bringing people together, Dennis, And sport really was the only thing that was capable of doing it at that time. Because when Alex won the World Championship, Catholics were just as into it as Protestants. And vice versa then when you won it. And it was the same with the Northern Ireland football team and the success they had. So it really is true. It's become a bit of a cliché. But it was the one and only thing that brought these two sides together at this time of awful hatred.
1: Yeah, I mean, one of the first, I just happened to have had an exhibition booked. It's only the week or or two after winning the World Championship. Um, a wee former altar boy from Kall Island was playing at the Shankill Leisure Centre, well you can imagine going there as world champion, the reception I got was just incredible uh, that was before I went back home to Kull Island when Island when the town was absolutely jammed full of uh, I don't know how many thousands of people came into Kall Island from all denominations again, so yeah I was very very proud of um, you know, not only being world champion but listen, when you travel around um even if you're not world champion, we, we traveled all over the world, and you're an ambassador for the game of snooker, but you're also an ambassador from where you come from, and I was always very proud and aware of that. He's done it. Dennis Taylor, for the first time, becomes Embassy World Snooker Champion 1985.
0: The whole place here at the Crucible erupting for this very popular Irishman. He is so happy. Two major
1: titles this season and also the Irish Championship. A fabulous picture of a very happy and popular man.
0: Well, I don't know, that's definitely,
1: well, the greatest match I've ever been involved in in my life. Can I bring in the man who created the match with you, Steve Davis? Steve, it's a a pretty tough moment, this one, isn't it? Yes. Can you believe what's happened here tonight, yet? Yeah, it happened in black and white. (laughs) (laughs) Has anything like that ever happened in a match before to you? Have you gone through anything like that of emotion and uh, tension? No. (laughs) Who can blame him, after all? But uh, I'm sure you'd uh, appreciate you've been beaten by uh, quite a considerable man tonight. Tremendous, he played really well. Dennis? Well, David, To beat Cliff Thorburn, who I think is the toughest player in the world, and then to beat Steve Davis, who's been the best player in the world, well, you know, there's not a lot more you can say, really. Uh, well, I'm the best this year.
0: <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, Steve Davis and Dennis Taylor, who've created a wonderful match here tonight. When the dust settled on the 85 final, Dennis, because you've always been good friends with Steve, did the two of you just sit privately away from everyone and have a little chat about it all and reflect on it? Or have you never spoken? (laughs) We
1: never never did chat like that about it. It's only uh, when we started doing... uh, Because we also do dinners together where I will work with Steve, he'll get up first, and uh, his delivery is is very, very funny, totally different to mine. And then you get to hear him reflecting on what happened... uh, uh, especially during that last frame. So, yeah, but it was a good few years before we even uh, even discussed it. But uh, now, you know, I just love to <laughs> listen to Steve talking about it because I'm the one that managed to knock that black in. It could have gone the other way, but uh, he handles the whole thing very well. And uh, uh, it, it's just great to, to, to be good friends with uh, Steve and do the shows with him.
0: You loved a good comeback in those days, Dennis, and you had another one in that Masters final, which was less than two years later. Against Alex Higgins, eight five down, you turned it around to win nine eight and become Masters champion. What are your memories of that night?
1: I would never have won the Masters that year, only for one thing. Um, Trevor East, who was with me throughout the whole of the World Championship, Trevor was the head of sport with ITV at the time, and um, he had spent the seventeen days at the Crucible with me, uh, and then he was there at the Masters with me, and I was eight five down. We both had gone out to the toilet, and uh, Trevor spotted, you know, backstage said. Uh, Alex's manager, I just heard him ordering a dozen bottles of champagne to celebrate Alex winning his first major for two years. Well he told me that and that got my nothing to do with Alex, you know, but it got my back up, I thought. So his manager was ordered the champagne, so let's do something about that. <laughs> but, and I went back in and I played out of my skin to come back and win all four frames to beat him on the decider.
0: But that's what you're like, Dennis, isn't it? You've got this relaxed, jovial, friendly personality, but underneath it all, you're as hard a competitor as there's ever been yeah. in snooker. Yeah. It took me a while to develop a
1: killer instinct, and you've got to have it in the game of snooker. It took me, uh, you know, a few years to develop that. But uh, once you get it, uh, you know, you 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 want to keep keep winning. I probably could have won more majors, but I, I did manage to win. I think it was 19 tournaments around the world, and a few of them were against Steve and against Jimmy White. And, you know, I enjoyed every single minute uh, of being a professional snooker player.
0: Well, listen to this. The Masters, the World Team Cup, the Tokyo Masters, the Carling Challenge, the Canadian Masters. Now, those were all tournaments that featured the best players in the world playing for big money. They were all on television, and you won all of those in one year in 1987. You also won the Irish Professional that year, and you got to the Grand Prix final. Would it be fair to say then that maybe you were an even better player than you'd been in '85?
1: Yeah, I would. I would. I would. The following, as you said, two, three years, certainly the next two years, I played with an awful lot of confidence everywhere I went. And I think in the Canadian Masters against Steve, I went four 0 down. I think against him. I remember Clive Everton? doing the commentary and, and, and talking about how well I played. I think I made three centuries and four frames, and uh, on, on another frame I was on a maximum of 90-odds. So, uh, yeah, I, I, I produced. But, of course, the old glasses were really working well, and it was Jack Carnum who used to work uh, for the BBC as a commentator. It was a professional Jack as well, probably a better billiards professional than snooker professional, and his family business was making spectacles, and he... I, he said, listen, you can get a pair of glasses made in a couple of hours. I said, no, I want you to make a pair like the pair. Because he had a pair exactly the same as the ones he made for me. But he was never seen on TV with them. I stayed with him down in Bracknell for two days. And he got all the uh, old tools that his family business. Well, a young man, he used to make spectacle frames. And he made them by hand. And uh, bless him, uh, Jack Carnum probably... Um, was one of the biggest reasons I became a world champion.
0: One of the first tournaments on satellite TV was played around that time as well. It was just for the match room players, and that was a big event, and you won that as well, so it was a great time for you. Another very important piece of equipment, of course, Dennis, was your cue, and I think around that time you'd gone back to the one that you'd won the world title with. Is it true that your dog <laughs> bit into it and did it some damage? Yeah, I'm, I used to, sometimes
1: uh, I'd just leave my cue underneath the table, and it was a little Westie we had and it uh, it somehow g- got down into the snooker room and uh, it must have thought the end of this queue looked good, the tip. So <laughs> I had to get the little teeth mark uh, <laughs> taken out of the queue, which made it a little bit slimmer at the end. But uh, no, that was a, a wood-to-wood joint queue that I had got made, an Adam Custom queue. Um, because I was the first player to use, well, the first uh, UK player to use a two-piece queue uh, Cliff Thorburn got me one in Canada, I think it was 1974 we were over there, and uh, the reason was because you could take them on board an aircraft at the time, and they were easy to put in the overhead lockers, so that was why I had a two-piece queue. People laughed at me and said, you can't play with a pool queue, <laughs> and sure enough, John Spencer, the first ever world championship at the Crucible in 1977, John won it with a two-piece queue.
0: Decline inevitably comes to every player, Dennis, and for you it came around the sort of early to mid-1990s, and players notice it in different ways. So what was it in you that first made you think, maybe my best days are behind me?
1: I think going to play and qualifying rounds, when we had all the cubicles the first time you, know, you had, it was like playing in a squash court type of environment. Um, I wasn't particularly enjoying it. Uh, after you'd been so used to the big stage, and I think a lot of the top players at the time that were having to play in qualifiers, when they were dropping down the rankings, found it very difficult, and uh, I found it very difficult. You were losing matches that you shouldn't be losing, and uh, and then I was, uh, I was starting to do a lot of uh, speaking. People were asking me to speak at dinners and that, which I really enjoyed, and I still, to this day, I love doing the dinners. So I thought it's time to to give up the snooker and and just concentrate on uh, the commentary and uh, the other work that came in um, regarding sort of speaking at dinners and of course exhibitions. I was still doing exhibitions and I did. Um, Ian Doyle that was managing me just before I retired he said well listen stay one more year, play one more year and then you've played in the 70s, Mm -hmm. the 80s, 90s and into the noughties so that's what I did so but we had a great we had a great victory towards the end of my career. I always say I went out in style. We did knock England out of the um, the World Team Championship, or it might not have been the World. It, it probably
0: was. It the, was the Nations Cup. That's it. And I think it was six five. I remember talking to you after the match, and you were as delighted <laughs> oh, as you'd been yeah, at any yeah. time since eighty yeah. five.
1: I know we, we when we knocked England out, we had a great night out with Joe Swale, and uh, because I was fifty, that was it. I was fifty. The next day, and my family were all coming up, so I had to have two nights out, which <laughs> wasn't. The, the best thing but my last two televised frames competitively on the main tour was one against Stephen Henry when we played Scotland and I managed to beat him on the pink uh and then my second one was against John Higgins and John had never even made a maximum break in practice and I think I broke off and he made his first ever maximum break so I went out on a high uh beating Stephen Henry and watching John Higgins make his first ever maximum break. So it was two frames on television that weren't a bad way to
0: end your career. Always in the middle of the limelight. <laughs> and before you finished, Dennis, you actually played Ronnie O'Sullivan at the Crucible. And you, in fact, were the first player Ronnie ever beat there. Now, that was 1994. You dropped out of the top 16 as a result. But did you ever imagine, as you were leaving the Crucible, that that would be the last time, apart from seniors events, obviously, that you would play there?
1: never thought about it Yeah, you, you always think you're going to go back uh, it must be nice if you can look around an arena and say well this could be my last time there but I never thought about it at the time um, well it was a great way I suppose to play the greatest player that's ever played the game and of course I also had the pleasure of playing Ronnie in his very first Masters um, and you beat him I it's mean, the same year t- to beat him 5-1 at the Masters was because nobody gave me much of a chance but I knew Ronnie would find it. it's a totally different venue to any other venue. The conference centre was a vast arena with a table in the middle and it takes a bit of getting used to. And I, I played quite well against Ronnie and Ronnie uh, didn't quite get used to the conditions.
0: Yeah, and he wasn't some untried newcomer. he just won the UK <laughs> Championship a few weeks before. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it was a really great win. By the time all these matches that we're talking about happened, Dennis, you'd already firmly established yourself as one of the big names in commentary. In fact, you were commentating on the British Open final on ITV just a few weeks before you won the World Championship. Now, was that something you'd always thought, oh, I really want to get into that? Or was it more a case of someone coming to you and asking you to get involved? I was thrown in at the deep end. It must be, I tell you what, it must be nearly 38 or 39 years
1: ago. It was at the UK Championship and someone had taken ill one of the commentators and uh, the producer said, would you would you like to go in the commentary box? And try?" I said, yeah, I'd love to have a go. And of course, they put me sitting next to For me, will always be the voice of Snooker, whispering Ted Lowe, and I sat beside Ted, and did a bit of commentary. In those days, you didn't have much commentary to do. They didn't like you to say very much, and then that all changed, like all sports, and people like to hear a sort of a a running commentary. So that was me, and I loved it from the the first time I went in, and I always said uh, people asked you what was it like doing the commentary. I always went in the commentary box certainly at the beginning, and I, and, I, and I commentated as if I was sitting in somebody's lounge with them, watching the snooker and telling them what was happening, and that was always my uh, early philosophy, and I suppose it did stay with me, uh, you know, and, and still does to this day. I, I commentate there and as if I'm sitting in the lounge with people just Chatting to them and telling them what's going on,
0: and I think people feel that, Dennis. I think yeah. they feel when they hear you commentating, they're listening to a friend. Well, I hope so. I've always uh, always done my best. I, I'm not one
1: of these that would, if somebody makes a blunder, makes a bad shot, I will give them a bit of criticism. But I'm I'm not there to just criticize, um, you know, everything they do because I know how difficult it is for them out there. But uh, you know, if they, if they don't get it right or they make a mistake, I will certainly voice uh, my opinion.
0: Here's the quick fire round, Dennis. This is just a bit of fun. I throw a few topics at you, and you just say the first thing that comes into your head. Your favourite music?
1: Um, it would have to be, and, and yeah, you know, I, I love all sorts of music. So it would have to be. Uh, I'd have to go for the old rock and roll music. I used to love that. What would be your favourites? Uh, well, because Joe Dolan, I was so mm-hmm. friendly with Joe. He Used to come to Cole Island when the the dance bands were around, and uh, Joe came on. Uh, this is your life for me uh, what a surprise singing Saturday night at the movies so that type of you know music because I always loved jiving so any music that you can jive to has always
0: been a favourite with me he was a huge star in Ireland back in the day Joe Dolan your favourite holiday destination
1: it's still Spain uh, I've got a little place not far from uh, Porto Benus, about six miles from Porto Benus, because I love I love my golf and uh, I've been going out there for well over 40, if, if not getting close to, well, 50 years, um, all around, uh, well, we used to go to Pontins, Pontinental. They had a place in Torremolinas that we used to go because we played in the tournament. So that was my introduction to Spain, and I've loved it. And uh, I still love going there to play golf. It's just the most wonderful place to play golf. Well, that leads very
0: nicely into the next thing I was going to throw at you. One golf course to play for the rest of your life. What would it be?
1: Wow, there's so many then. This, I mean, I played it not that long ago after the Northern Ireland Open. Uh, and they, t- they took me to Portrush again to play at Royal Portrush, Royal County Down. I mean, they're just uh, incredible courses. Funny enough, that was a lovely little story. Niall Horan, oh, yeah. One Direction, he, he's his company promoted the Northern Ireland Open. And I, I've met him a few times, a smashing lad, and we were there, and there must have been three or 400 young girls between the age of 12 and 15 on the different tees, and Niall was there. And I said, uh, you know, I didn't realise, Niall, that uh, snooker was still quite <laughs> popular with the young people <laughs> in Northern Ireland. So those courses, but Loch uh, Lomond's a, a favourite, but there's so many. I mean, uh, Waterville, uh, you know, Killarney, yeah. I mean, I, I just love. But if there was one course, mind you, Rush is tough. You wouldn't want to play it every day. <laughs> so um, I just love uh, I love all all golf courses, but uh, Portrush and County Down would take some
0: beating. Favorite movie? Papillon. Ah, <clears throat> yeah.
1: the original with Steve McQueen.
0: It can be hard going watching that. It
1: is, but the reason I watched it, my uh, Brendan and my son, uh, they must have watched it twenty times. I don't know. There was something about the movie that they liked. It was it. You know, I watched the newer one, but at the time. That was uh, one of my favourite. But listen, any movie with Paul Newman, Steve McQueen or Marlon Brando in, is,
0: uh, I'd watch it. Your fellow BBC commentator, John Motson, albeit in a different sport, he went to see Papillon on his first date with the woman he later married. Oh, no, then. Living in <coughs> Wales. <coughs>
1: yeah, we moved there, must be nearly 19 years ago. My wife Louise, who's uh, originally from Liverpool, but went to school in Rill near Prestaten. Uh, so she lived there, and uh, eventually they, they had a place in the Isle of Man. And when they come back, they moved back to Prestaton and I was living in Blackburn. I'd been over 30 years in Blackburn, wanted to get a bit closer to them, so we found, uh, you know, a place halfway between prestaton and Blackburn. And uh, then Louise's parents, 10 years ago, moved with, his, sadly, her mum. Uh, passed away just uh, about 18 months ago with this terrible COVID. Um, but I love it. I love it. I'm in mean, North Wales, lots of great golf courses. Get back to and maybe once a week to play with Mike England, um, who used to play with Blackburn Rovers. And managed right, Wales, national Managed team. Wales, and um, he also played with Spurs, signed for Manchester United, and it didn't come off because there was a... A bit of controversy about a news of the world reporter and he shook hands with Matt Busby, but they couldn't complete the deal. He got the call from Matt Busby and he went to Spurs. But I'll tell you one thing, George Best in his book said that Mike England was the best centre-half he ever played against. So that's a, a big compliment.
0: congratulates Dennis who, at his tenth attempt, becomes the Benson and Hedges Master of 1987.
1: Well, it gives us great pleasure to invite our winner to come forward and receive his cheque for £51,000.
0: You've now decided to stop playing altogether because you talked about retirement in 2000. But you then moved into another playing career when the seniors started to take off. But you've decided it's time to bow out of that now. That must have been difficult to finally stop playing competitive snooker after almost half a century as a professional
1: player. Yeah, it was. When I, when I, you know, retired from the main tour, I didn't play for 10 years, and you know, I didn't. It was mainly dinners I was speaking at, and when we moved, I didn't even bother having a snooker table at home. But then um, Jason Francis got the Legends tour going. I mean, Alex was in it originally. Alex Higgins, um, Cliff Thorburn, Jimmy White and John Parrott. But Alex wasn't very well, so I remember Cliff saying, you've got to to join us, which I did do, and we had a wonderful time playing all over the UK with the Legends. And then, of course, Jason turned it into the seniors. And now it's growing and growing. And I was doing the commentary with John Virgo, but I was still enjoying playing in it. But the last, at the World Championship, I thought, I'm putting myself under too much pressure going out on TV. You know, you you don't really want to be putting yourself under that sort of pressure. So I decided that that was the the end of it. And then, of course, the mid, Rob Walker (laughs) and Jason Francis, surprised me with 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 an interview and all that I wasn't expecting. I thought that would just be it. But that was one time I was going to walk out of the crucible and know that I wasn't Mm going to be playing competitively
0: there again Bit more time to play golf I suppose um, and another sport that I've always wanted to ask you about but I've never actually had the chance to ask you this I heard once that you played for the Tyrone Minor County Gaelic football team is it true?
1: Yeah before I moved to England I moved when I was 17 and a half yeah played for the minors. I think Kerry beat us in the semi-final of the All-Ireland uh, but yeah I loved the Gaelic football and uh, played a bit of soccer uh, which I suppose back then was a bit controversial you know uh, playing Gaelic, uh, it was very difficult to play soccer, but I enjoyed the soccer. I played for Cull Island Celtic and um, uh, carried that on, almost went for a trial at Blackburn Rovers, but uh, I made the right decision to carry on playing snooker. But uh, there's a lovely little trivia question you can. Who was the first Tyrone man to hold the Sam Maguire Cup above his head in Croke Park, and everyone will say Peter Canavan? When I won the World Championship and went back home, they got me out onto the pitch and they got the Sam Maguire Trophy and I held it above my head in Croke Park, so that was a, a fantastic uh, experience for me to do that.
0: I was going to ask you about that great era that Tyrone have had, because when you were growing up, Tyrone was not one of the no. major counties in Gaelic football, which is pretty much the biggest sport in Ireland, uh, but they've had this great run since, and Mickey Hart has been this great manager. What have you been thinking, looking on as a Tyrone man? Thinking you could never have dreamed of that as a kid. Well,
1: no, but they became so professional. And I met Mickey for the first time. We played in the in the in the pro-am golf uh, over in uh, when we we're over in Northern Ireland. What a gentleman! Mickey. One of the nicest men ah. you could ever meet. And and we, it it was rained off, so we had a lot of time to sit in the in the big marquee together, the tent, uh, the hospitality tent. What a gentleman! And he brought a lot He still. I think he's still involved with the local club uh, with the Gaelic. And, uh, yeah, he, he made it very professional. And when you watch the game, it's a totally different game to when I played it. Uh, it's so fast and that would, uh it's it's great that we can see it now on on TV. You know, it was very difficult. Because it's to, shown in Britain now. Yeah, exactly, yeah. and and uh, I'm sure they get quite a quite a following. So it's great to be able to watch it.
0: Speaking of County Tyrone, it's not that big a place when you consider in global terms. It's so amazing that it's produced a world snooker champion and an open golf champion. Do you know Darren Clark at all? Darren, well,
1: I used to play football. Well, when well, I said I played a bit of soccer, I played against uh, his dad, Godfrey. He played for the Clarks, the Dungannon Clarks. And I used to play against him. Uh, I you know I didn't realise that for quite a while that uh, that, that Godfrey was Darren's father. Uh, but yeah, I played. I've played with him in the um, the pro am, the Benson Hedges pro am. Uh, met Darren on numerous occasions, and uh, as I say, he, he lives down in Portrush, but he's a he's a good old Dungannon boy. So three miles, three and a half mm. miles from where I come from. Um, what an achievement, uh, you know to win the Open, it was incredible so very proud when he did
0: that Tell me about Strictly Come Dancing Dennis because I do watch (laughs) it the odd time with my wife and it always looks like great fun to be involved in
1: Yeah, it's probably changed a bit when I was in it 16 years ago believe it or not, there was no group dance you had to go out live after training for so many days you had to go out live on your own you didn't get into a group dance to get used to it you were on your own when you went out there and I remember Isabella Hanna, uh, she was a Polish girl that I, uh, was my partner, and at the UK Championship, uh, when it was at Preston, at the Guildhall, they made me go out live and dance with her, practicing the cha-cha-cha around the snooker table in front of all my friends and that, but uh, yeah, I stayed in for five weeks, which was great, as long as you don't go out the first two weeks, and five weeks was, uh, was, was just about right for me. Darren Goff, won it that year the cricketer Uh, and we had a wonderful time and great experience but nerve wracking going out live on a Saturday night in front of about 11 million people uh, (laughs) It took a bit of doing, but uh, I loved every minute of it.
0: Judd Trump said some things earlier this year, Dennis, about how there's too much nostalgia in the game. And I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, people like Dennis Taylor and Steve Davis, these are the people who were the trailblazers for snooker and made it so big in the first place and created the environment that now enables guys like Judd and players of a similar age to have the life they have. So it's important for people like you to still be around the game and remind us of where we've come from.
1: Well, I'd like to think so, because I've given everything to the game. A snooker, I've had a lot out of the game, but it's uh, something when we used to travel uh, to Australia in the early days with Ted Lowe, who uh, brought the eight pop black players mainly there, we were promoting the game around the world. And we went to meet uh, potential sponsors with Ted Lowe and... Uh, you know, we didn't spend all day practicing. We were out, sort of uh, working for the game of snooker, and we put an awful lot into it. The players back in those days. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's. And I know Jud likes. Uh, he wants to see a lot of change. Uh, some change is great, but and, and they say about all oh, the youngsters would like to see them dressed. But I remember when the, the the youngsters were winning a snooker tournament to get to the Crucible, and these twelve year olds or whatever, they loved to come in their waistcoat and bow tie. You know, to 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 be there at the crucible, and they feel
0: and, like a proper player. Then. I
1: think so. You know, tradition. I think you've got to keep tradition in all sports. Look at the golf; they always they're showing you uh, little snippets of Arnold Palmer, Gary Player, Jack Nicholas. You know, you can't forget the history of the game. I know you've got to change with the modern times, but. Uh, Uh, Well people are entitled to their views you know everybody doesn't have to agree with them
0: and those of us who were around in 85 and for the Masters in 87 will never forget those moments Dennis I know I'll remember them for the rest of my life so you've given us great enjoyment and I'd like to think finally Dennis you have had tremendous fun not just from the game itself but from everything that has come with it for you over the years.
1: Oh, it's incredible, and the people I've got to meet all through snooker, and then because you, you you played snooker, you you were well known. You got invited into golf tournaments, and and I've met some you know superstars from I mean Howard Keel Golf Classic. He did it for 27 years. Willie Morgan, that used to play for Man United, uh, promoted it. I met some. I mean, I used to love. Uh, we're talking about music earlier. Uh, Johnny Mathis. I loved his music. When a
0: child is born.
1: I'm sitting in the golf buggy on a Saturday afternoon playing golf with Johnny Mathis. I could not believe it. And then, uh, you know, you you get to me. I mean, Jack Lemmon, you know, uh, that started with Marlon Monroe and some like it hot, met some unbelievable people, and that's all through snooker. So I've had the most wonderful career and uh, life out of snooker. And it's hard to believe that I've seen an article. My sister from Australia sent a little article and it was a page in the local paper about 14-year-old shows them how to play. So it was in the Kall Island, uh, I think it was the Observer or Democrat newspaper. And I've only just read it yesterday. And it was me getting through to the third round of a tournament when I was 14 years of age in Kall Island. So the wee fella from Kall Island uh, didn't too too bad with the big upside down glasses.
0: Yeah, and you're a great advertisement, Dennis, for having an active, busy life because you're in incredible condition for a man into his 70s now. You've had great fun in life. You've given all of us so much enjoyment over the years. Keep on enjoying life, Dennis. Keep on having fun. And we hope to see you around the game in some capacity for a long time to come. And thanks so much for your time on the World Snooker Tour podcast today. Michael, it's a pleasure, an absolute pleasure. Join me again next week when I'll be talking with the recent UK Championship quarterfinalist, Andy Hicks. Among so much else, we'll be reflecting on his famous run to the semi-finals of the World Championship and considering why he couldn't get past Nigel Bond to make it to the final. If I'd have turned back time and done a few things differently, one of them definitely would have been a lot of the press work that I'd done after beating Peter Ebdon in the afternoon the day before um, playing Nigel. I think it was about two or three hours of, of, you know, I mean, in some ways I felt that I I should do it because, you know, there was a lot of attention back home in the West Country. Um, but maybe I would have rained back a little bit because I was very, very tired going out playing Nigel. And we could all, you know, make excuses. I mean, it, it wasn't necessarily an excuse as such, but I lost it in the first session purely because, you know, it was it was everything around me that was sort of catching up. So that's coming up next time on the World Snooker Tour podcast. Until then, do enjoy the Masters. Thanks so much for listening and goodbye.